past, research into the illicit firearms market has shown that a lot of firearms have come from political conflicts across Southern Africa. In Mozambique, the civil war between the Frelimo and Renamo forces led to a significant increase in firearms in the country. In Zimbabwe, during the 2000s, President Robert Mugabe militarized the police in order to create a militia within the ruling ZANU-PF party, which included the importation of 21,000 AK-47s from China. In South Africa, during the 1980s and the struggle against apartheid, there was a growing demand for firearms from state security forces and their allies on one hand and freedom fighters on the other. The apartheid state distributed firearms to groups believed to be on their side, then destroyed any records of the transfer, making it almost impossible to trace the exact number handed out. Similarly, the exact number brought in by liberation forces is unknown, but believed to be as many as 10,000 weapons. In December 1994, the new government declared a weapons amnesty and asked people to hand in their guns. Only 900 firearms and 7,000 rounds of ammunition were returned. In all of these cases, Mozambique, Zimbabwe and South Africa, it's likely that some of these weapons ended up in the hands of criminal groups. Fast forward to the present day, and many of those weapons from conflicts or retained despite the amnesty in South Africa will be obsolete, age and neglect seeing to that, Instead, today we're seeing newer weapons entering the market, some through cross-border trafficking, but more are being sourced domestically. And according to new research from the GI, in all three countries, a significant number of those firearms are coming from state actors. Today, we're speaking to Jenny Irish Oboshiani, a researcher at the GI about her new report, How to Silence the Guns, Southern Africa's Illegal Firearms Markets. Welcome to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. Jenny, according to this new report, there are approximately 3.8 million illegal firearms circulating between Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and South Africa, with 2.35 million of those being in South Africa. Who are the people getting their hands on these illegal firearms? So in the report, we look very specifically at how these firearms fuel organized crime. And we would be talking about a number of different areas where these firearms go. Some of the people involved in drug trafficking, and in South Africa in particular, your gangs and people involved in gangsterism and drugs are heavy users of the illicit firearm markets. And in fact, in that area, you've had leaders of gangs becoming not only users of firearms, but also dealers within the illicit firearm market. And then you have the whole area of organized armed robberies, where you have people involved in cash and transit heists, people involved in armed robberies, people involved in hijackings across the three countries that also you make extensive use of those firearms. And then you also have the illicit wildlife trade, which obviously makes extensive use of firearms. In South Africa particularly, you've got the taxi industry, which creates a major demand for illicit firearms. 
And then you also have illegal private security companies that are making use of these firearms in places like Mozambique and Zimbabwe. You have people involved in kidnappings that are making use of these firearms. In all three countries, the firearms are used in assassinations, both political and organized crime assassinations, groups involved in that. And then you have a number of kind of what we've put as new players on the block. So in Mozambique, you've got the instability that is happening in northern Mozambique, where that has increased the demand for illicit firearms. And in South Africa, you've got things like the construction mafia, who have also started to become users of that illicit firearm market. One of the most disturbing aspects of this report is the extent to which state agents are directly complicit in the sale, the rental and distribution of firearms to criminal groups. Could you expand on that? In Mozambique, for example, a significant number of cases that we looked at and interviews that we did spoke about people in the police and in the army renting out their firearms to people involved in assassinations, people involved in armed criminal activities. And there were even prices for those rentals. In South Africa, there is some rentals going on, and there always has been some of the police and army guys who would rent out their their firearms. But what is quite significant in South Africa is the number of firearms under the police's jurisdiction that go missing and are never recovered every year. And that would include firearms issued to police officers, police issue firearms being stored by the police, as well as firearms that are confiscated and put into evidence stores, which go missing. And then also firearms that have been collected during amnesties, which are earmarked for destruction and never get destroyed and find their way back in communities. And in the report, we profile a number of cases and examples where those firearms have gone missing and where they have been linked to possibly landing up in the hands of organized criminal activities. Only the police in South Africa give us comprehensive statistics on the loss of their police-issue firearms. Most of the other government departments don't report on their firearms, but there is significant information in the report linking Metro Police, the South African Defence Force, to firearms going missing there and some of those firearms landing up in the hands of organised criminal actors. What was quite alarming for me was that within the government departments, there are more than 1.3 million firearms that exist within government entities and government departments. The number of weapons issued to the police and army are literally half that figure. So you've got a huge number of firearms in different government departments, which are never, ever reported on. We profiled seven different departments and we sent them applications through the PI Act, asking them how many firearms do you possess, how many firearms have been lost and stolen. None of those departments were able to respond to us. So of those government departments who were unable to respond, correctional services, uh, state security and the Department of Agriculture and Forestry and so on, I must say I'm surprised that the state security agency or even the municipal police don't actually have an obligation to report on firearms to the South African Police Service or SAPS uh, if they get lost or stolen. Look, in terms of the Firearms Control Act, they are required and obligated to report to SAPs, any firearms that go missing. 
Sachs then reports that figure in their annual report. What we picked up is from audits that have been done in some of the different departments and parliamentary questions that have been asked of, for example, the SANDF, the number of firearms that are being reported to SACS and then subsequently reported in the annual report, and the number of firearms that are coming up through audit reports or through, through parliamentary questions to different departments don't correlate. So clearly these departments are not even complying with the Firearms Control Act in terms of reporting those firearm losses to the police. I think one of the big problems that we're facing is that if you take the Metro Police, for example, that fall under the local municipalities, firearms are almost seen as an asset, the same as a computer, which is very concerning. And I think that that is one of the big takeaways for me from this report is that, yes, SACS is a problem. And we know that, and it comes up very clearly in the report that SACS is a serious problem. But we also need to be focusing on these other government departments and their responsibilities, both under the Firearms Control Act and Parliament's responsibility to begin to hold those different government departments. I mean, correctional services, we heard a lot of anecdotal information about correctional services loss of firearms. We weren't able to to actually publish very much on it because nobody was able, including people in corrections that we sent requests to, were able to give us any concrete information on how many firearms they possess and how many have gone missing. But people told us that they access firearms through the correctional services. Wow. What about things like the integrated ballistics identification system and the dot pin marking? I mean, has that been somewhat successfully applied in the SAPS context? And could it be used in these other departments like the state security or Metro Police firearms departments? Look, there was definitely an attempt after 2010 for the police to do that with all their police issue firearms. And It does seem to have had a slight impact on the number of firearms that the police lost over that period. However, what has been of extreme concern to us is that more recently, the database that holds that information on police issue weapons, there's been huge problems about SAPS's firearm databases and who owns them and what is going on with them. So the firearm permit system, et cetera, et cetera, on which all these police firearms, et cetera, are supposed to be registered, is not functioning effectively. And they admitted in Parliament just over a year ago that while a significant number of their weapons had been dot-pinned and IBIS tested, that they were issuing weapons to SAPs where the dot-pinning and IBIS testing had not been recorded. And that is a step backwards rather than a step forward. And it has to do with some of the IT chaos that is going on in the police and in the firearm area and forensic area in particular. With regard to the IBIS testing, we raised some concerns about similar problems, that the IBIS system is not working as effectively as it should, which is an IT issue within SACS that needs to be addressed. Certainly sounds, uh, it, it just sounds like an excuse when you say it's an IT issue. I think it has to do with corruption and everything that has gone on around those IT systems in the police. And Jenny, what about the military? What kind of reporting structures are there for when arms go missing? So the military are also supposed to have very strict controls in place to actually handle their firearms. Also, you remember in the case of the military, certainly in the case of South Africa, but not so much in the case of Mozambique, army officials don't take their firearms home. In the case of Mozambique, they do, which creates a whole problem in itself 
with some of the military people being able to take their firearms home and those firearms going missing under suspicious circumstances. In South Africa, where the military are supposed to have these tight controls, they're not only supposed to report to SATs, but they're supposed to have systems in place to pick up losses. They don't report in their annual report on the number of firearms that are lost and stolen in the military. So all we could get information from was from specific cases, as well as from parliamentary questions asked of the military. But if you take a couple of the cases that we dealt with, take the most recent, which was the Littleton case, which was quite well publicized, where I think there were semi-automatic firearms that were taken from the army base. People were arrested for that. But we're not even sure if those people that were arrested were the people involved, because what happened was a snap audit was done and the firearms were said to have gone missing. And everybody who was responsible for security on that base at the time the audit was done was then charged. However, we don't know when those firearms went missing because the place had not been properly audited and supervised for more than three to four months before the audit took place. And to make matters worse, the CCTV footage was gone. So we don't know when that happened. And we don't know how many other army bases that is happening on where there haven't been proper audits. Um, and that is the big concern for us is that some time ago, there was a audit report on the SANDF and the problems around their control on firearms. And it seems that very little has been done in the last 10 years since that audit report was done. That is very worrying indeed. And what about private security companies? They're also bringing guns into the illicit market. You have a number of private security companies that are unregistered and operating with illicit firearms. And that seems to be the case across all three countries. Or security companies that are registered but are making use of illicit firearms in their activities. And that occurs across all three countries. But there's also what we refer to in the report as a blurring of the lines between legal and illegal firearms. You also have security companies, and a case in point is security companies operating in the taxi industry, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, that are either using illegal firearms or are actually using their registration as private security companies to access legal firearms and then using those firearms for illegal purposes. So to carry out hits on behalf of taxi people, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we refer quite clearly in the report to cases where there is a blurring of the lines between legal and illegal firearms. Okay, let's turn now to the cross-border trade of arms in Southern Africa. Jenny, can you briefly describe where these guns are going, where they're coming from, and what are the key routes? Historically, Mozambique has been the major supplier country for both South Africa and Zimbabwe. And South Africa obviously being the major market. And firearms have come in through the borderline in, in Mpumalanga. They've gone in through the borderline in KwaZulu-Natal, where very often there's nothing more than just a cattle fence that separates the borders there. And Mozambique, there was at one point a very strong transit route through Malawi and through Zimbabwe for illicit firearms. And there were a significant number of firearms being moved during that time. There are a number of factors, no one single factor for why that cross-border trade kind of started to take less significance. And part of it was Operation Rochelle, which was a joint operation between South Africa and Mozambique. And part of it may also have been that 
newer markets became available, the type of guns that people were looking for in South Africa also started to change as the markets became more sophisticated, etc. And we have seen significant decline in weapons from Mozambique into South Africa. It still happens. There's no question about it. It still happens. But it is not anything like the scale that it was happening before kind of the early 2000s. And Mozambique itself is also, it's become less and less of a focal point in terms of weapons being distributed from Mozambique onwards. But what we also found in Mozambique is with some of the conflict that had been going on there, that weapons were coming into Mozambique itself. Some small numbers coming from South Africa, which were very small and relatively minor routes, but there were quite a lot of weapons coming in from Mozambique's northern borders, particularly with what is going on there around poaching, around instability, etc. The demand for weapons coming in through their northern borders was becoming more significant. So, Jenny, what are the key factors then that determine the price of a firearm in this illicit economy? The price is determined by a number of, of factors. What we found is that there are similarities between, so if you take, for example, what a taxi industry person is paying for a weapon and what a gang leader is paying for a weapon, they are pretty much similar. Not always exactly the same. It depends on who your source is, what sort of agreement you have with your source. But in some cases, what has happened, which has pushed the prices up for the on-the-ground foot soldiers of the organized crime, is that some people, the people that are able to access large amounts of weapons, such as your gang leaders, have become middlemen dealers. So they put a significant markup on the firearm before they sell it on to their foot soldiers. Being able to access, particularly during Prince Lu's time, being able to access significant amount of firearms, they have seen firearms as a way of making additional money, often making between 50 and 100% profit on those firearms. You mentioned Colonel Prince Lure, and of course, the director of the Global Initiative, Mark Shaw, has written a book about this case called Give Us More Guns. But for those who are unfamiliar with it, could you explain what happened in this particular case? So Colonel Prince Lure was the head of kind of firearm controls in the Gauteng province. He was considered in the South African police to be one of the key firearm gurus. So very often he was the person that SAPs turned to when they had any issues around firearms. He, together with another police officer, Colonel Naidu, who was also responsible, they, they had control over many of the police firearm storage areas, both in terms of firearms that were police issue firearms that needed to be replaced and were recalled, as well as firearms that had been seized and were put into police evidence storage facilities for subsequent destruction. So there could be amnesty weapons or weapons seized during police operations. Up until about 2008, they were operating an extensive gun running network, siphoning guns out of these stores and actually supplying them to a number of actors. We know for a fact that they distributed a significant number of firearms into the Western Cape, into gangs, and there's a direct correlation between the increase in gang violence and the levels of gang violence in the Western Cape and these firearms being distributed and becoming very easily accessible to the gangs. What has also come out, um, and which we've tried really hard to look at, 
and we have some indications, but was that it was not only the gangs in the Western Cape that they supplied to. They also supplied to people in KwaZulu-Natal, in the taxi industries, but they've been less transparent about their involvement in that. Prince Lou pleaded guilty and was convicted and subsequently given early parole. But he was the most senior ranking police official to have been arrested for this kind of activity illicit operations. But we also pointed to a number of other cases which would indicate that there were similar networks operating. In Norwood and Johannesburg, there was a raid on a house where a significant number of firearms were found in that house, I think over 300. A significant number of those firearms came from police stores. Some of them were even amnesty firearms handed in and recorded as having been destroyed, and they had been found in this house. Now, that case, unlike the Prince Lou case, where the Prince Lou case, at least, there was a trial. This case, people were arrested. The police promised the public that they were going to get to the bottom of this. They were going to have an investigation. Almost seven or eight years later, nothing has happened with that case. Nothing. From what we can understand, it's fallen off the the case roll. And we still are no clearer on exactly who was involved in smuggling these firearms from different government departments and the police into this into this group. And the allegation was that these firearms were being hired out to organized criminal groups. At the start, we mentioned the amnesty in South Africa in 1994. Jenny, do you think these disarmament amnesties or demobilization campaigns would be effective if they were conducted today in clearing the streets of illicit firearms? I think that those amnesties do play an important role. But I think you need to understand where those amnesties are playing an important role. Unless you're going to have a blanket amnesty like you've had in Mozambique at different points, what they do is they remove weapons that are susceptible to flooding into the illicit market. So that would be, for example, my father dies and he has a firearm. And I really don't know what to do with this firearm and I haven't followed proper procedures with this firearm. Now, the chances are I'm probably a bit slack with the firearm if I haven't followed proper procedures. So an amnesty gives me the ability to hand that firearm in. And if the police were more accountable, hopefully that firearm makes it to destruction. And there needs to be a very closely monitoring of that process from the point when it's handed in. So I think that amnesties play a significant role in getting rid of some of those firearms. And that's important. But in the South African context, for example, If a firearm has been used for an illegal purpose, you don't get amnesty for what you've used that firearm for. So they're not going to clear that big illicit pool that we're talking about that exists. And there we need to have much stronger intelligence and detective operations to be able to clear that pool. And also then make sure that we're stopping, as we're clearing that pool, we're not allowing more firearms to flood back into that pool from state departments. So the police seize a significant number of firearms each year. There needs to be a system in place that monitors that every single one of those firearms actually does get destroyed, not just on paper, but in actual practice. But it's no good doing that if more firearms are just coming into the market. So we need to be able to turn off the tap as well as then deal with the firearms that are in circulation. Part of turning off that tap means that when a firearm is seized, We've got to be able to trace it from the point of its seizure to the point that it actually gets smelted down and we've got proof that it's smelted down. And that may require some very serious independent oversight because the police have not been 
very transparent and good when it comes to this process. Okay, so Jenny, let's turn to the recommendations in this report. There's obviously a gap between policy and practice, but fundamentally, do you think that Southern African countries largely have the right protocols and policies in place to control firearms? Well, you know, there is a new protocol that has just been developed within SADC, and it's actually a very good protocol. What it does is it it builds on the previous protocol that was in place, and it just fills in the gaps of those protocols. I think the issue for us is the implementation of those protocols and the effective implementation of those protocols. Having legislation and saying we comply because we have all this legislation and we have all these policies and procedures in place is fine. But if they're not being implemented and if there's no oversight of that implementation, it is a very serious problem. Obviously, for countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe, there are very clear issues around the financial ability of those countries, the resources those countries need to be able to effectively implement those protocols effectively. And that is something that seriously needs to be addressed. I think the issue for us is at what point lip service is being paid to this. So everybody says, but we're compliant, we're compliant. But when you look at what's happening on the ground, clearly there isn't the implementation of those compliance mechanisms. I think we are very clear that, yes, we do need to, there's no question about it, we need to look at the issue of civilian firearms that make their way into the hands of criminals. But one of the things that we are even more concerned about, because the state should be an accountable agency, is in all three countries, there needs to be a greater emphasis on the state's firearm accountability within different government departments and their accountability for what happens to to their firearms. I mean, I think those are two of the key things that we pick up on in our recommendations. I mean, we've got a number of recommendations in the report. Some are very specific and some, you know, looking at things like security at storage facilities. Others are, are more looking at things like the SADC protocols and how do we make sure that these are effectively implemented and monitored across the three countries and across SADC probably as a whole. And also looking at different things that we need to do. For example, you know, in South Africa, a very simple thing would be to get Parliament to hold different government departments more accountable for the weapons that they have under their control. Because certainly we've seen in SAPS, SAPS is still a major problem. Certainly in, in 2010, when SAPS was losing massive numbers of firearms, about the same time that Prince Lou was also operating, we also saw that SAPS started to quite seriously try and implement measures to reduce the number of firearms. I think Parliament has taken their foot a bit off the pedal there and they need to put their foot back on because I think there have been some walkbacks from that. But I think that different government departments need to be more transparent and accountable for what firearms they have under their control. And that is absolutely critical because in our estimation that, yes, civilians are losing a significant number of firearms. We need to deal with it. There's no question about it. But we need to start holding state departments accountable for the fact that they are becoming big players in the solicit firearm markets. Jenny, thank you so much for speaking to us today. That's Jenny Irish Goboshiani, a researcher at the Global Initiative. There is a link to Jenny's new report, How to Silence the Guns, Southern Africa's Illegal Firearms Markets. It's in the summary to this podcast. You can also find a link to a short documentary produced by the Global Initiative called Armed Response, South Africa's Gun Violence, about this same topic. 
For other research and multimedia content on organized crime, head over to our website, globalinitiative.net, or you can find the GI on social media. This is Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.